Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Either you are with us or you are with the terrorists. If you've got health care already, then you can keep your plan if you are satisfied with it. Donald Trump is not going to be president of the United States. Take it to the bank. Together, we will make America great again. We shall never surrender. Never it's what you've been waiting for all day. The Buck Sexton Show. Join the conversation. Call Buck toll-free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. The future of talk radio. Buck Sexton. Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show, everybody. 2018 is upon us. Welcome to the Freedom Hut. Great to have you with me. 844 900 282 5-844-900-BUCK. It has been too long, my friends. I apologize for my absence from the airwaves. I had to get, well, I actually didn't get much sun, but I did go to a sunny place with Miss Molly on vacation for a few days. I even managed to leave my iPhone uh, away from the beach, leave it back in the hotel room for a couple of days. And I had a, had a great time. But I missed this. I missed all of you. I missed this part of my day-to-day, which is doing this show. And some of you probably caught it right from the outset. But it is no longer, we don't even have to, we don't have to say it anymore because it's no longer the name of the show, that, that previous name of the show. It is now as it was in the beginning. For those of you who are original Saturday Squad, OSS, and all of you listening, because I... I Love and respect you all equally. Uh, But it is, as it was in the earliest days, the Buck Sexton Show. And that is the way it is going to stay. And I thank all the folks at Premier for uh, uh, agreeing to move forward with the show as such. Because now, man, we are locked and loaded for 2018. And before I get into all the news of the day, I just want to say that I do think, and you can call me a little crazy, it might be the residual pina coladas and Patron silver talking here, but 2018 is going to be a great year. It's going to be a great year for this country. It's going to be a great year for the economy and it's going to be awesome for us here in the freedom hut. So get ready, get excited. Uh, We are launching the shields high podcast next week. For those of you who like history, who get excited about, as I do those battles uh, that, could have changed the course of events that lead to this day. That will be happening next week. Uh, Introducing you to some characters that you have probably never heard of on this show. Others you have. It'll be in story form, and I'm, I'm excited about all that. iTunes, best place to go to subscribe for that. You can also listen on the iHeart app. and You can follow on the iHeart app, Shields High, which... Started out as our as our war as our war face as our battle cry, and now it has turned into a spinoff show of its own. Uh, so, big things coming in twenty. You're going to hear a lot of changes on the show. You're going to hear the return of Kami Bear. You're going to be like, wow, it's it's all where we've been. It, it's all moving in the direction we've been hoping it would. Starting almost almost a year ago now, uh, when I started here on the nationally syndicated show, uh, we've also picked up a number of wonderful affiliates and i cannot thank them all enough for their vote of confidence in me and this show going into 2018 let me just say that it is because of all of you who listen who tell your friends who support what i do who appreciate that this is 
my life's work right now. This is what I put my heart and soul into, and I value your time, and therefore I give you everything I've got every single day. So with all that, on our first day here of the nationally syndicated Buck Sexton show, I'm sorry, I, you're gonna, I like, it's fun for me to say, because I've been waiting for a little while. Um, I want to talk to you about some of the latest in the news. Uh, for example, we will be, or let me set the table. You can tell I'm all excited. I, I, it's like I haven't seen you. It's like I'm getting to give you a big hug at the, uh, at the airport here, team. Um, but we will get into the protests in Iran. Many of you were sending me messages. I was, when Miss Molly wasn't paying attention, I was sneaking some looks here and there at my Facebook inbox and emails, and then I'd hide my phone. Oh, no, I'm just, you know, just looking for suntan lotion. Uh, but we will talk about the Iranian protests. We will discuss um, uh, what's going on there. We'll also talk about the latest in the Mueller probe and investigation. And uh, if I have time today, the change in the DOJ stance on marijuana um, and also the deep, well, the offshore drilling that the Trump administration announced today, which is part of my overall thesis here that I just have a really good feeling about 2018. And and that is in part the economy, the numbers, what we're seeing happening, tax reform, and also the sense that the, the left, the media, they've thrown everything they can at the Trump administration. Everything they've got so far hasn't really hasn't really done much at all. Perhaps slowed things down here and there, but haven't landed a punch yet on this administration that has really made me worry. And they've been flailing. You know, they've been throwing messy, ill-timed, unpracticed haymakers and falling on their face more times than not. The fake news has been stumbling much more than they have been successfully attacking. So that, I think, is all very positive for this year. And, and I'm just excited about it. I, I can see, I see uh, greatness on the horizon for this country, for, uh, for all of us here in America, and uh, if I may say so, also for this show. Uh, so, the latest today, and, and I, I don't like to spend too much time on it, but it is certainly getting a lot of media attention right now. Uh, the latest today is about the war, well, not within the White House so much as it was, or, or is those who were formerly in the White House and those who are still in the White House. You have all of the, you have this uh, this book that's supposed to come out soon that will be uh, that will be published that says a lot of incendiary stuff, particularly from Steve Bannon. Right, that's that's what really has gotten so much of the media firestorm going here. And Trump earlier today at the White House spoke about spoke about this one, and, and here's what he had to say. Thank you very much. I don't know, he called me a great man last night, so, you know, he obviously changed his tune pretty quick. All right, thank you all very much. Thank you. I don't talk to him. I don't talk to him. I don't talk to him. That's just a misnomer. Thank you. Trump is saying, look, I, I don't talk to Bannon, and he did refer to Bannon, or he did say that Bannon had uh, lost his mind because of what was quoted in this book. Now, I read through this story, and I'm, I, I have to be honest with you, uh, this makes for very interesting reading, uh, this upcoming and very 
controversial book um, written by a guy who has a guy who has a spotty history of journalism and reportage in the past. Uh, but it, it said Fire and Fury, the upcoming book, Fire and Fury, it, it says a lot of stuff about the infighting with Ivanka, Jared on one side, Javanka, as Bannon apparently refers to them, and Steve Bannon and Priebus. And it's really a compilation of many of the palace intrigue stories that we've seen earlier in the year that also adds some salty language. But I will tell you this. I think it's really much ado, much ado about nothing. Uh, I think it's going to fade pretty quickly. Although, you know, Steve Bannon, Trump said that Bannon last night referred to him as a great man. President of the United States is a great man. You know, I support him day in and day out, whether going through the country, given the Trump miracle speech or on the show or on the website. So I don't think you have to worry about that. But I appreciate the kind words. So he called him a great man on radio. Uh, I, I don't, you know, I don't know Bannon, so I'm at a little bit of a disadvantage here in some ways because there are so many media figures that if they were in Bannon's role, I could talk to you about my own interactions with with the person and my sense of who they are as a human being, as a professional, everything. I've never met. It's crazy. I've never met Steve Bannon. I've never talked to Steve Bannon. And for somebody of his stature in conservative media or right wing media, it's just I don't know. I don't know how to explain it to you. I just never we've never crossed paths. I can't say that about I think any anybody else in this business that would come to mind easily in in concern on the right. I just for some reason, I've never met Bannon. I don't know. And so I can tell you this. A lot of people I do know who have worked with him have deeply uh, bitter and bitter is not even the right word. Uh, critical, deeply critical things to say about him. Uh, they say he's the worst. Basically they say he's the worst. Now, could he have been a bad guy to some people he worked with, but was the perfect guy to be in the Trump campaign when he was sure. You know, I don't really know. Because, again, I haven't had the personal exposure to Bannon to give you a sense of what I believe he would say and what he... And look, I'm just honest with you about it, right? A lot of people will get on the air and they'll say, oh, well, this is what this person was thinking. And then you find out they don't even, they don't even know the person. They have no interaction. So I'm basing it on the public accounts as well as the, the... Including a lot of stuff that isn't public that I've been told by those who have worked with Bannon that he's got a rep. That's one way to say it. He's got a rep. And that he would say some of these things about his rivals for power in the White House is not surprising. There seems to be a megalomaniacal streak with this Bannon fellow uh, based on what he says. And he, he may have been right on a few key things for Trump when it was really helpful. Uh, you know, He may have been the one guy who was a stalwart during Billy Bush weekend, as he's talked about that, who one guy who said, oh, Trump's definitely going to win, and this is about borders and sovereignty, and those are all very important messages, to be sure. But the notion that Bannon was the kingmaker here for Trump is just nonsense. It, it's just, it doesn't wash, it doesn't hold water. And if Bannon is out there spreading that, that's a pretty good indicator of, if not a state of near delusion, uh, at least the guy's got bad judgment. I should probably, you know, I haven't even really listened to his radio show. I don't even know if he's a good radio. I've seen plenty of his interviews, but 
uh, I, I am troubled to see that Bannon would be so unconcerned with the damage done to the administration and therefore the country that he would say things like this to a journalist. And it, it certainly seems to me like he he did say some of it. I don't know if he said all of it, but he certainly seemed to say some of it. Um, and then you have this story out today. And look, I just happened to be reading over the break, rereading, um, because of some other projects I'm thinking about working on, uh, a book that I could rent, recommend to all of you. Uh, I'll tell you about the other books I read over the in full over the uh, later on in the show. But uh, Bernays, not the sauce, but Bernays, B R B E R N A Y S. Propaganda, written in like 1928, and this is the the origins, the uh, origin story in a sense of what we would call the modern PR, uh, modern PR apparatus industry, right? Public relations. And when I heard today that the White House was considering suing to block the publication of this Fire and Fury book. I just thought to myself, this is a this is a miss on on every level. This is an emotional response to a problem that would go away on its own. And and like I said, all of this, all of this is in one way or another, I think, uh, overblown. It doesn't really matter that Bannon was cursing or that, you know, whether Jared said something that was buffoonish or not or whatever it may be. It doesn't really matter. Because. Trump has withstood all of this. The administration's withstood all of this and, in fact, has already shown results. The country's doing really well. There is a, a sense of ebullience, a, a positivity that is infectious right now that is out there. Um, and I, I felt it over the holidays, and I think it's continuing and, and giving us a strong headwind into 2018. People are going to be bringing. They're going to be bringing back all this money from overseas. This investment, these bonuses, all the the stock market. Talking about cryptocurrency tomorrow, uh, Bitcoin and all the rest of it. Taking probably a more philosophical approach, or a, a, an approach to the philosophy of cryptocurrency. But that'll have to be on hold till tomorrow. Sorry, I'm throwing so much in out there and in, <laughs> out there in there around there because been so long i can't remember the last time i went this long like doing a radio show i it, i don't know if i've ever taken a full week off while i've been doing radio close to it but i don't think i've been gone a full week before so because in the past i always would fill in for rush so this is the first time i i, I don't know man i'm i, I started to, after a few days i started to get a little little twitchy i was like i need to i need to get back on radio um we got a lot to talk about my friends i would love to hear from as many of you as feel like calling in although i've got a ton to say as well so if you just want to sit back relax chill and let the freedom hut do its thing that's fine too 844-900-2825-844-900 buck team light him up great to be back stay with me through this break What's the president's reaction to the growing number of suggestions, both in this book and in the media, that he's un- mentally unfit uh, to serve as president? Uh, the same way we have when it's been asked before, that it's disgraceful and laughable. Uh, if he was unfit, he probably wouldn't be sitting there and wouldn't have defeated uh, the most qualified group of candidates the Republican Party has ever seen. So I, I have to agree with Sarah Huckabee Sanders there, obviously. He he's unfit to be president, but he beat a so-called shoe-in candidate with Hillary Clinton and the entire media apparatus behind her and all. Really, 
but but he's 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 unfit. He was unfit to what be a very successful TV and a TV personality and businessman. And I mean, this is just the, the people who are mentally unfit are the ones who are saying that about the president right now. I mean, they have a real problem. They've had a break with reality. They are delusional. That said, I have to disagree with this tactic of suing to block publication of a book that has a lot of Bannonite bile in it. The this is something I know about from the, the let me tell you how the CIA and, and the national security agencies work on this stuff. Right. You if you work there, and you have a security clearance and you're going to write about things that you had access to your you know, that that touch on where you had access to your clearance. Right. Then you have to run through a publication review process. If you don't do that, there are two options. They can uh, go after you for disclosing classified. But more often than not, all they have to do is actually just take all the money, because usually people don't want to write a book to disclose classified. Usually, I'm not saying they don't, who worked in the government, but usually the the issue just comes down to, are they going to publish it anyway because they know it's not classified, but the government's being annoying about something, and so they just do it. Well, then the government says, you know what, you broke your NDA, we'll take your money. But that's for the author. It's not based on the sources for the book. And that's a very specific circumstance for somebody who signs an NDA based on their national security clearance. Right. So the notion that you're going to go to the courts and stop the publication of a book based on the sourcing of the book, it's just an it's prior restraint and it's a non-starter. It would be I'm just I'm just keeping it real. Everybody it would be laughed out of any court in the country. And on top of that. On top of that, it makes the the book sales now they're they're moving up fire and fury. They're they're pushing up the publication date, and the book sales are going to be through the roof. This is the best press that this British author could have ever possibly. Ho- I mean, are you kidding me? Not only are we all talking about it, and there's some pretty juicy stuff in there, but just in terms of reading enjoyment. But the the administration's going to say they're going to sue. Oh, it's look. They're I don't think they are going to sue. It's just a reaction to this. And I get it, right? The Trump folks are, and the president himself, they're so sick of the smears and the lies and the, you know, oh, he eats cheeseburgers and he's so weird and look at his hair and all the the childish nonsense they throw at him. And so I I think that they just, in in an undisciplined messaging fashion, lashed out today and they'll let it go. But here's the good news about all this. As I was saying to you when I started out the show. They're not going to really lay a glove on Trump here with any of this stuff. It doesn't really matter. If everything in the book is true, it doesn't really matter. If Bannon does think he's at war with Trump and is going to run against him in uh, 2020 and all, it doesn't matter. All that matters is that the president's agenda is implemented and benefits the American people and is successful. That's what matters. At least matters to me, matters to you. At the end of the day, that's all we'll remember. just two weeks ago before Christmas is already delivering major economic gains. Hundreds of thousands of Americans are seeing larger paychecks, bigger bonuses, and higher pension contribution. And it's all because of the tax cuts and the tax reform. And I want to thank all of the companies that work so hard to do it. 
Workers at AT&T, Bank of America, Comcast, Southwest Airlines, American Airlines, and many other companies are receiving bonuses of $1,000 or more. Aflac and others are investing more in employees' 401ks. CVS announced it will hire 3,000 new workers. Boeing, another great company, is investing hundreds of millions of dollars in employee training and infrastructure. More than 60 companies have announced they are raising wages, including many that have voluntarily raised their minimum wage to $15 per hour. And I mean, they did that voluntarily, which many politicians said could only be achieved by government mandate. Investing so, in I mean, that's, that's what matters. Those are all things that can affect you, can affect me. And that's what we should really care about here when it comes to our government. Is it doing a good job? Are smart decisions being made? Will it benefit me? Will it make it easier or harder for me to pay the mortgage? In my case, pay the rent because I don't own anything. Will it be easier or harder for me to get a job or get a raise? You know, pay, pay my tax bill. Uh, these are the things that are first and foremost in the minds of certainly everybody who has a realistic understanding of government, right? I know there's some people that are like, oh my gosh, climate change. What are we going to do? But for the rest of us, government is not supposed to be a reflection of our uh, virtue signaling and social anxieties. It's supposed to be something more tangible than that, more real. And the Trump administration is in the business now of trying to deliver on that. And I have to say, I think that a lot of indicators are that things are going to be very, we're going to be heading into very positive territory here with the economy. Uh, I think you're going to have very strong growth. I think they just, the job, what jobs numbers just came out for, was it December? I think what was it was 250,000 private sector jobs, I believe, was what I saw, if memory serves. I, I read a lot of stuff throughout the day, so sometimes things get jumbled together. Uh, but things are going quite well. Uh, the, the Dow today, I think, hit an all-time high. And for those who are like, well, you know, I don't own stock, or if you have a 401k, or even if you have a pension plan, pensions plan pension plans are in are based on invested money, everybody. So uh, that that's if cities and uh, municipalities, states are going to meet their pension obligations. Guess what? They're 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 inve- the money is invested that's supposed to grow over time and be able to pay the obligations that they have. So those things all have, and they have impacts on the housing market, on employment, everything else. That stuff all really matters. And then you have today the Trump administration moving the impediments to offshore drilling. You know, they're pretty amazing facilities. I, I will talk more about Aruba later on in the show, but that's where I spent my vacation. I had a great time. Um, really uh, well, I'll, I'll go into some detail about Aruba later. It's very, it's very much a, a a mixture of Caribbean and Dutch, right? Which is a pretty obvious thing to say about it, but you really get the sense when you're there. Um, but they had these enormous offshore drilling platforms you could see from shore, which I will admit are, are not the most lovely thing when you're staring over at a be- otherwise pristine blue waters of the Caribbean. And you see this big thing looming in the background, like a mountain of Mordor. Uh, but hey, you know, commerce, baby, someone's got to pay the bills and that the uh, Trump administration is going to remove these prohibitions that were just 
based in in really nothing. I mean, I, I've read the the debates over this stretching over many years, and people say, "Oh, well, if they allow this drilling, there could be there could be oil spills." Well, you know, no matter what you do, there can if it's a pipeline, there could be a break. Although that's actually very rare. Uh, if it's uh, you know you know look at the Exxon Valdez, right? If there's a giant oil tanker disaster. That's bad. I mean, things are going to go wrong sometimes. It doesn't mean that you stop that commercial enterprise. But this is also just an indicator of the realistic view. And I don't I don't really care all that much what the internal deliberation processes of this White House are. Right. Fire and fury. Oh, my gosh, this book. It's so I don't care. You know, if, if ban- I mean, I should look, I, I can tell you some of the meetings that I sat in on at the NYPD. You want to talk about colorful language? Things getting salty. True story. At one point, a very se- a very senior member of the uh, forty or thirty five thousand member strong NYPD turned to me and was like, "Was that a little too much, Buck? Did we did we cross a line there? Did we cross a line?" I was like, "Nah, nah." I've heard such things before in a scene from Goodfellas. So you know, there's there's a. There's a the pure or the uh, the pure curiosity that you may have over uh, pure curiosity that you may have over um, whether we can find out the truth of this and what was said and I get all that right. Look, I'm gonna write, I'm gonna read this book. It's, it's gonna go in my pile with a few other things. I'm gonna read this book. There's not really much of a question there, uh, but I also read what happened because I had to know. Even though I already knew what happened, I wanted to hear what Hillary's version of what happened was. So I, you know, I had to read that on my Kindle. Uh, but this is feeding the the media into the, feeding the media hysteria that they're going to be able to end the Trump presidency. The, it's not going to happen. They can cry and scream and whine. It's not going to happen. And as long as the economy isn't just chugging along, but is gaining steam. And decisions are being made about regulation, about oil exploration and drilling and taxation and business growth. You know, the business of the American people is business, right? Calvin Coolidge. Booyah. I mean, this is what we should all be thinking about. Not all, you know, did Jared really say that to Priebus and was Priebus being so nasty? I mean, this is like high school gossip stuff doesn't really matter and and i i wish the white house would ignore it but i also understand the impulse sometimes it just yeah and in, in a couple of days we won't really be talking about it as much so they want to fight back a little bit all right fine but in the meantime it drowns out stories like the white house saying that they're going to open up to o- offshore drilling and this you know th- there are everybody's got their things that they believe are more important than other people believe and everyone has their their hunches, their uh, their grandiose theories for why something is or is not happening. And I'll just I'll be honest with you. I mean, there are two uh, two different storylines for me in this country that don't get nearly enough attention. One is the way that the proliferation of cell phones, digital technology, and instantaneous uh, omnipresent communication and video and and audio devices everywhere has changed human behavior, most notably criminal behavior, in that it's actually a lot harder to be a criminal now than it used to be, at least a violent criminal. People don't talk about this, but it's it's just true. 
Okay, I mean, it's that somehow this never gets because there's really no, how do you do a study of that, right? It's but at a macro level, I've walked you through the the uh, theory before that if you when I was growing up here in New York City, if I saw somebody getting mugged, and let me tell you, I actually did see that on more than one occasion. Uh, the best I could do would be to run into a store and say, hey, uh, you know, do you have a pay phone? And they would say no, and they'd say, oh, can I use your phone? And you know, the whole thing. Now, I could sit there and broadcast it live and be calling the cops at the same time and be videotaping the people doing it. Right? I mean, it's just a total game changer. And no one ever really thinks about it. or not, I shouldn't say thinks about it, but it just, the response times for, in a place like New York City, a felony in progress, it's pretty mind-blowingly fast, actually. Um, so, And that's all uh, communications have played such a huge role. Okay, that's that's one of my little theories. We'll talk more about that another time. Another one, though, is the impact of the shale revolution in this country and the uh, just the completely changed fossil fuel landscape because of U.S. shale oil and U.S. shale technology it is just the, the ramifications are beyond anything that anybody can properly assess. It's been enormously positive and growth uh, inducing for our economy. It has also dramatically lessened the geopolitical sway and power of opposition countries like Iran, like Venezuela, like Russia. These are. Uh, petrochemical states i mean these are are petrarchies right these are um uh petrolarchies they are all about petroleum uh they are all about paying their bills with the revenue that comes from selling oil and natural gas and fossil fuels and with the plummet in prices because of the massive expansion of u.s capacity and what that does, you got to remember, 50% of fossil fuel consumption in America has nothing to do with cars. It's in products. It's in uh, you know, manufacturing. It's in industry. It's in energy creation, you know, electricity and things like that. <laughs> it's in energy. Yeah, I know. It's not just what goes into your car. We always think of it, what, what do we pay at the pump? It's what are you paying all the time? And that happened despite the Obama administration's strenuous efforts to put the shale genie back in the bottle, right? To, to stop that from happening, to stop drilling on federal lands, to st- stop drilling offshore, all this. Why? You know, because it always seemed to go, you don't know what you got till it's gone. Pink Paradise put up a parking lot. That's why. And I, it, it, I spared you all my singing that, but you know what I mean. And so we have yet again another decision, not with a lot of fanfare, you know, not a tremendous amount of media effort going to be uh, spent on this. I see CNN is going wild with lawmakers calling on Sessions to resign. Who cares? Come on. Come on. Uh, Meanwhile, Trump is allowing uh, American energy and business and Uh, entrepreneurial spirit to be unleashed and the benefits for all of us are going to be, I think, uh, particularly profound in 2018. I really do. I think it's going to be a great year. So drilling offshore, the shale revolution, these are shaping the world. Well, drilling offshore is a small component of 
the overall energy picture of this country, but the shale revolution is is enormous and it has changed so much of the way states around the world interact with each other. It's also destroyed the narrative that we're running out of oil or we've hit peak oil. Because keep in mind, there are a lot of other countries that haven't even, pardon the phrase, tapped into their shale oil capacity yet. They haven't even gotten with the shale oil situation and they can, they will be able to, which means they'll be able to extract a whole lot more of their own natural resources and, and so on and so forth. So, you know, we've extended oil far into the future and we're coming up with new technologies that are more efficient and less, uh, less polluting all the time. And so just, you know, this is my way of saying things are good. Yeah, the Democrat machinery and the left, they've got tricks up their sleeve. They're nasty. They're going to try to impeach Trump. I see all that. Oh, we're in for a fight in 2018. Don't 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 make, make a, you know, don't let me come across mistakenly on that one. Oh, we're in for a fight. But I say we fight because we got a lot to a lot to be thankful for and a lot to be happy about, too. We got something to fight for with this administration. And with that, I will say 844-900-2825. We're going to talk about the Mueller probe and some of the latest on the GPS fusion, the Russia, Russia, all that stuff in the next hour. Uh, Andy McCarthy will be joining from National Review to talk about why the New York Times' latest effort to draw attention away from the dossier is a pile of horse manure. That and more coming up. Stay with me. Welcome back, team. We've got some lines lit. Let's get to it. Charlie in Maryland. Welcome to the Freedom Hut, Charlie. Hey, Buck. I'm glad uh, you're going to listen to an old man. (laughs) I'm sitting here in my truck smoking my cigar and enjoying your radio show. Thank you, sir. And thinking about DACA and the kids. And we are compassionate people. I raised three and sent them to college on bricklayer's wages, which is a little tough to do. But my point, we can bring these kids into our system, which is fine, under a few conditions. And my point is we can raise them until they're 18, and then they have to get a job and support themselves like my kids did. Also, they can never have the possibility of voting. Well, a few things, Charlie. One is that a lot of people that are covered under DACA are way older than kids now, right? So the, mm-hmm. they, we're, we're talking a lot of adults. When, and, this is, yeah. and this is part of the way the media propaganda game goes here. you got a lot of adults out there, people in their 30s or 40s, are saying, oh, I was brought here, but you know, I had no idea. And Right. I look, I, I think that the approach that Republicans need to take here with DACA, and, and I'll probably talk about this more in the next hour, has to be that n- now you get the permanent changes. You have to get up front the permanent changes to immigration policy and immigration enforcement. And then you can set up whatever framework you want for who among the DACA population can stay and who cannot. But you have to get a wall. You have yeah, to get e verified them to vote for them. I'm sorry, Charlie. What? If, yeah, if the left wants to, wants them to vote. Oh, of course. Yeah, no, of course. And and keep in mind, you know that, that uh, the the DACA look anybody who's covered in DACA, a lot of them, if they're young adults or adult, they're they're having children, they've already had kids, their kids are going to go up and vote, and so there's a Democrat constituency issue here with DACA, no matter what. There's there's that's and no one's uh, realistically talking about 
that not being a factor. But what you can get, I think, for in exchange for DACA would be a, a wall built. I think you can get e-verify. Workplace enforcement is huge, by the way. That has because you get half a million visa overstays a year. So those are people that a wall is not going to stop. A wall is going to stop people. Don't get me wrong. But it, this is why it's a multi-pronged, multifaceted, all options, uh, all of the above approach. And if you get not just commitments, but actually enact enactments, if you will, of the wall uh, of no citizenship, but some look, it would be the equivalent essentially of a, of a of a green card program for some of the DACA qualified individuals. But that's at the back end. It can't be like Obamacare where it's like, oh, we get the goodies. And then all the the crappy yeah. stuff is is in the back and nobody figures out what's going on until it's too late. Right. Upfront wall, E-Verify, end to chain migration, end to the visa lottery. All that has to come first. And then, yeah, mm-hmm. Doc, I think we work on something. But, yeah, also no citizenship. I, I'm sorry, but, you know, you can't have you can't have it all. Right. Uh, right, Charlie. Although it sounds like you're having a good no, time hanging out. No, no citizenship. No vote. Yeah. Then we'll see how many Democrats want these people to come into our country. Uh, They're still going to want them because they're going to have, you know, they're going to have children who will grow up and likely vote Democrat. And there's a whole, you know, because they they assume that a constituency, and thank you for calling in, Charlie Shields. The Democrats assume, unlike conservatives, that somebody's background, uh, in this case, predominantly uh, people from Latin America, determines their vote. Well, I don't view it that way, but Democrats do. Let's talk Mueller probe and all the rest coming up. The Buck Sexton Show is here. Thank you so much for joining me, team. 844-900-2825. Talking a little bit in the last hour about the intrigue, palace intrigue book, Fire and Fury. Ooh. Uh, not really going to make much of a difference in any of our lives. Might make for some interesting reading. I would guess about 50% of it is just kind of made up. Or at least twenty-five to thirty percent of it is made up, and maybe twenty-five to thirty percent of it is very much exaggerated. But that's just a guess. I mean, that's not even—I'm not even saying it's an educated guess. It's just a guess. But based on the excerpt that I read, uh, and that I think unfortunately is overshadowing, and the media loves this, and the response from the White House today about the lawsuit's a bad idea. But I think that's overshadowing the otherwise. Just very uh, heartening trajectory of the country right now. I think things are going really well overall. I know it's crazy, right? I'm a radio host. I should be like, everybody hide. They're coming for us. No, actually, America's kicking butt. Let's be clear. America is kicking butt right now. We can kick more, but we're actually doing well. Things are going well. I want to talk to you about these efforts underway to stop us from doing well by completely... Uh, hamstringing the administration by bringing some kind of a uh, impeachment proceeding against Trump, all that stuff, right? Mueller and Russia and all this. Got Andy McCarthy joining on that later on this hour to talk about his view of the latest. Uh, really fake news, but fake news in the model of of the best KGB-style propaganda, which is a a false story planted in the press specifically to undermine an emerging and very uh, damaging true story, which is the provenance and role of the dossier in everything, right? So they want to get away from the dossier, so they'd like to focus on anyone else. And uh, Papadopoulos, <laughs> see, I actually I actually went, went a little too too wild on that one. Papadopoulos, 
is the individual that they have focused on now. They've moved from Carter Page, and everyone's like, hmm? to uh, Papadopoulos. Uh, but before we do that, I, I mentioned DACA before the break, and I know we've got some lines lit on this one. I want to take your calls, and then I'll move into the latest on Comey and Mueller and Russia. Oh, my. Jesse in Florida. Jesse, welcome. What do you got? Shields high, buddy. Shields high, man. Happy New Year. Thank you. You too. Uh, I don't know much about the, the DACA situation. Are these people that are here illegally, is, are, is our taxpayers' money paying for these kids? Are we, are we subsidizing these kids? Are they drawing a, a Social Security check or some kind of check that we're paying for, for them uh, to be here? So let me, let me give uh, some, some details here, because DACA is going to become a very, I believe, and uh, it's going to become a very intense topic of debate soon. I'm not sure in a matter of days, but I think within a matter of weeks, you're going to see this because it's at the heart of the whole immigration uh, reform effort that Trump promised. Right. Because this is what he's saying. You know, th- this is where there may be a concession to the left to get a whole lot of stuff that will truly strengthen borders, truly end chain migration and the the rampant illegality of immigrants crossing or not immigrants, illegal aliens crossing the borders uh, for, for decades now. So a few things, Jess, and also I want you to keep in mind and for everyone else listening, that one of the reasons why many of us would not have just at the top of our minds, and you're asking me, well, what does it cover? What does it not cover? Media doesn't want you to know the truth about this, Jesse. They're not going right. to, if you turn on CNN, they're not going to tell you the numbers and what's really happening and who this really covers. They're just going to show you one valedictorian after another who's uh, either crying or yelling in outrage about how unfair it is that the Trump administration is actually trying to enforce the law when it comes to immigration. So some things about DACA. Well, to, I, I, I was yeah, gonna, like, every, like everything else, I don't mind people coming here legally them getting a pathway to citizenship where we know who he, who's here. They're paying taxes just like the rest of us. But if, if our tax dollars are paying for them to be here and they're not paying any taxes, they're not working or paying any taxes, you know, that's not right. No, no, I, I hear you. So let me, let me tell you some things about DACA, okay? Um, about uh, 90% of the 800,000 people that are directly covered under DACA. Remember, DACA is a program. You actually have to te- you have to kind of apply to the federal government to be covered under the program. 80%, so we have pretty good numbers on it. Uh, 80% of them are from Mexico. 90% of them are from Latin America. But it's overwhelmingly an issue of Mexican illegal immigration to the United States. That's what DACA really deals with. And the the pe- people are saying that they are they were brought here you know without knowing they were kids whatever it may be most of them uh, I don't have the numbers off offhand or off the top of my head but most of them are in their mid to late twenties a uh, strong majority of the mid to late so they're not kids right these are adults now who are in the country as to right. what it gives them uh, they do not have uh, uh, they, they they get work permits and they get uh, the ability to work and to stay in the country without without being deported. So they get a kind of extra legal protection as to federal benefits, which is what you're asking about. um, They would not qualify for that, although keep in mind, states can give them benefits and they do. Most of or or about half of all DACA recipients 
uh, or DACA-covered individuals live in Texas and California, just two states. It's almost half of the entire 800,000 in those two states. And Texas, I mean, uh, California gives, you know, uh, illegals everything it can, right? Driver's licenses, health care, uh, you know, you name it, right? Schooling, right. everything. So, yeah, I mean, they're not technically allowed to get federal welfare benefits, but there are a lot of benefits that come from the state and from the government, uh, as we all know. And just being in the country, being able to work is a tremendously valuable experience. So uh, that's some, I think, some good background for DACA. uh, And then when you add DAPA into it, which is deferred action for the parents of arrivals, now you're talking about like a few million people, three or four million uh, and that's a big wow. chunk of the 11 million illegals in the country. So then you start saying, OK, uh, we're going to we're going to allow, let's call it four million of the 11 million to be permanent. That's a half amnesty. We're going to really believe that the rest of the amnesty is not going to happen. So this is why the, the devil's in the details, Jesse, the immigration always. But Shields, hi, man. And thank you very much for the call. I could talk about DACA uh, a lot this hour, but I think I'll try to. Well. I'll take the next question and uh, next call rather, and we'll move on to some other stuff because this this immigration battle it's going to get heated because you're going to see, and this has been a part of the Trump presidency from the earliest, or a part of the Trump movement from the earliest days. We finally have a president, I think, and some senior administration officials and uh, some folks in the media who are going to be willing to make the case. So, do we just does everyone get to stay? If what is the deciding factor, if the laws aren't the factor, what is what feels right? What what the emotional response of some individuals at the levers of power in the bureaucracy may be on any given day? That doesn't seem good. So that doesn't seem like a good idea. And at what point do we realize and I'm going to talk to you about it. I mentioned I promise it'll be more interesting than it sounds You're like, Buck, you're going to tell us the difference between. Uh, drinking a a Mai Tai and a Hurricane? Uh, And the answer is maybe. Uh, But with Aruba, I'll tell you what they do with immigrants, illegal immigrants, when they show up in Aruba. Because you think about a small island nation like that, you know, uh, they, you know, you get 10 or 15, 20,000 immigrants, guess what? That could sway the entire political landscape. So in, in microcosm form, we understand that immigrants who are brought, especially immigrants who come in illegally and then are part of the political process can dramatically and irrevocably change the political and social characteristics of a nation state, right? It can change the country, you know, literally change the way that the idea that is that nation state uh, propagates itself into the future and, you know, what it means in your day to day. Right. You look, you look at all, we, we are an outlier. We often forget that the notions we have about free speech and about free enterprise and rule of law. And it's not the way the rest of the world operates. They got a lot, there's a lot of stuff that we all take for granted here. And if you bring in enough people from outside the country, not bring in, if they bring themselves in illegal, I'm not talking about legal immigrants, I'm only talking about illegal immigrants right now, because legal immigrants, we should at least in theory be able to gauge the number coming in and allow for assimilation. But illegal immigrants are an end run on that process and can overwhelm the system. And by overwhelming it, they can also, in fact, dictate what happens to the system. Uh, that's and, and you start to get into notions. Of, and look, Europe, Angela Merkel, guten Tag, everyone. Happy 2018. Yeah. 
uh, Angela Merkel was the single most effective advertisement for Trumpism when it comes to immigration and borders and sovereignty that anyone could have ever devised, which is let's see what happens when we bring in uh, a million people from a disparate culture who don't speak the uh, or a very different culture who don't speak the language. And let's just see what happens, especially from a war torn country that has levels of uh, PTSD, psychological issues. I mean, the, the violence that places like Iraq and Afghanistan have been subjected to is multi-generational. You're bringing in people and Syria, you're bringing in people and you're assuming they're going to be able to function in that society. Well, we saw what happened in Germany and we see what continues to happen in Europe. Now you have to have special penned in areas that are safe zones for German women during the New Year's Eve celebration, everybody. That's a new phenomenon. We all can sit around and talk about or, or you know, pretend we don't we don't have any idea why. Um, which reminds me, we should get uh, 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 Dr. Uh, was it Dr. Bernard on the show from Austria. I'm still hoping to do that and talking about what happened with the Afghan immigrant population in Austria. And how they're just desperate. The Austrian government's desperately trying to cover up the truth of that whole situation. Uh, because they keep having these terrible crimes that happen. And the motivation is not, oh, I didn't have a job or I'm sad or whatever. It's no, I, I think you Westerners, as an Afghan immigrant into, uh, into Austria, the West is soft and, and flabby and weak and decadent. And I hate it. And so I will lash out. And this is what this is what they're saying when they're caught engaged in heinous crimes. And look, I know it's a small minority of the population, but a country like Austria, it's it's small, right? It starts to feel a little overwhelming when you think about what the future holds if you continue to allow large immigration flows of people that don't share your values and don't share your culture. That's just the reality. Greg in Oklahoma City, the Greg. Original Saturday squad and a veteran of the United States Armed Forces. That, Greg, good to talk to you, sir. Buck, if uh, the first four days of 2018 are any indication of how this year is going to go, uh, we're going to need you to do a four-hour show and not take any vacation because there's fire too, too much to cover in just a three-hour well, show. Th- well, thank you, sir. I, I missed it, man. I felt like I, felt <laughs> like I, wasn't, you know, I, w- I wasn't there from a squad, and now I'm back. <laughs> good to have you back, Buck. Thank you. Uh, one other thing I wanted to, to cover is Judicial Watch, you know, filed that lawsuit um, against the Justice Department back in 2015, I think in May, and they finally are getting these documents from Hubert Amadin's, um laptop. And who would have thought more classified documents on an unsecure doc- on an unsecure device? And I'm just wondering if we're just going to continue down this road of not doing anything to people that release classified documents in an unsecure location. Um, only military people are going to get hemmed up for this, like that kid on the submarine. Um, I think the other day it also came out that James Comey transferred. I was going to talk about that next, yeah. yeah. <laughs> classified documents. I mean, me and you know what happens to people that do far, far, far less than this. Right, truly accidental um, and, and no damage done, but still. Yeah we're, of- yeah, we're talking, you know, forget to take a cell phone out of your pocket. You don't even use it in the room where there's classified you're busted down a rank, you're classified, your security clearance is taken, you'll never get in it again, things like that. These people are just willy-nilly passing around classified documents like they're nothing. Um, and I, this is, it's frustrating for people like you and I or, you know, military, people that have been in um, the intel 
industry and stuff like that to know the precautions and the rules that are set in place um, for these actions. And there should be some sort of, you know, something has to happen to these people or we're just going to lose all faith in uh, the judicial system and how it works. We're, I think you started probably talking about this, I don't know, maybe two years ago. There's a separate class of people that it really doesn't matter what they do. They're not going to get in trouble uh, for any of these actions. It is absolutely true. Greg, um, I wanna, I'm going to address this on this side of the break. So let me say that. And uh, happy 2018. Uh, Merry Christmas. Thank you for your service. Thank you for your call. I'm going to address your question more in just a moment. Greg's OSS. That guy's the man. Um, but let me say this. There was a, a moment of, of revelation in this country when we finally came to the conclusion or, or those with open eyes learned that there was a deep-seated, anti-conservative, pro-left-wing, pro-progressive bias in the media and that it was pervasive. What Comey and the FBI and all this stuff has shown us is that a similar bias exists in the permanent bureaucracy, the fourth branch of government, the unelected leviathan of all these different agencies. That's pretty terrifying, but that's also true. More on that when I come back. So did the former FBI director, in fact, leak classified information to a friend who then passed that information to the New York Times in order to malign to uh, attack the president of the United States. Well, there's certainly some reason to believe that's what happened. Senate Judiciary Committee Chuck Grassley wants the DOJ to answer whether or not James Comey violated rules because he said it appears the former FBI director leaked, quote, at least one classified memo to a professor friend shortly after his firing. Can I just note The idea that Comey is anything but a self-serving partisan, given what he did here, is laughable. It's preposterous. Okay, look, I I left the agency. It would never occur. And I know people say, oh, well, you weren't like the director of the agency. Yeah, I know. I was like a little a little nobody. No one cared. But the point is, out of pure professionalism and respect for my home agency and the oath that I took to protect classified, protect sources and methods, I wouldn't be like, oh, yeah, I'm just going to take this memo with me because I, I, I've got a score to settle and I'm going to leak it to the press because I took an oath and I take it seriously. Well, what the heck's the problem with James Comey? What does he think he's doing? Why is this OK? And now look, we've social media is a great clarifier because it allows all these clowns to show us who they are. Honk, honk, waka, waka. You know, we now understand members of the press can't help themselves but be snide and smarmy when they talk about President Trump, which is great because then they're like, oh, why don't you believe my reporting? Or why do you think I'm biased and not, you know, I'm nonpartisan? It's like, well, you tweeted that you hate President Trump's dumb face like a day ago. So I'm pretty sure you're not an unbiased party here. And you share that publicly. Oh, yeah, it's Twitter. It's different. My story. But the same thing's true with Comey now. He's running around. Comey, the you know Zen Buddha master, was like justice and peace coexist together on a plane of eternity. It's like shut up, Comey. Guy is so look. He honestly, he looks like the he looks like he was the hall monitor in high school. I'm just gonna say it. He looks like the guy who was the dean 
who was giving everybody detention, who enjoyed it a little too much, you know? A little too much. Your, your, your shirt's untucked. 30 minutes after school today. I don't know if you guys had that. I had that. I went to a Jesuit school. If you did anything, they make you sit and stare at a wall for that. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's what, At scholarship school, they didn't mess around, man. If you you didn't want to be there, they're like, you can leave. But yeah, if you, if you were um, late, as I'm not going to lie, I was on more than one occasion. They would keep you and make you sit and look at a wall. But Comey was the guy who's like, yeah, I like that. I like giving out detention to people. Anyway. Did he give away classified? Yeah, I think he probably did. But will he get punished? No, because, as we just discussed, two sets of rules. All right, everyone. So there was that uh, bombshell report from the New York Times that happened over the break. I tried to ignore it as best I could from the beach, but it was it was hard not to read through the new story here, which was that the dossier, as they claim, was not the basis for all the Russia collusion investigation, the FISA warrants, all that stuff. It was Mr. Papadopoulos in some late night banter with an Australian. And that's how it made its way into things. But I don't really buy it. And I know somebody else doesn't either. We got Andy McCarthy online right now. He's former U.S. Uh, former assistant U.S. attorney. For the Southern District of New York, best-selling author, editor at National Review. Andy, happy 2018, sir. Great to have you. Buck, happy New Year. It was it was cold in New Jersey over the weekend, so I read it so you didn't have to. I, pre- I appreciate that, Andy. <laughs> uh, I, I, I tried so hard to leave my iPhone in the safe at the hotel, but occasionally it would wander out to the beach with me and I'd find myself <laughs> on Twitter and it's like a compulsion. But this was the one story that for about 24 to 48 hours was just everywhere. I want you to walk us through your explanation of what they're asserting here, what the Times piece is asserting, and then why it it doesn't add up to you. Well, the main thrust of it, Buck, is that the origination story for the collusion narrative traces to George Papadopoulos, who was this young, obscure... Uh, unpaid uh, person in Trump's campaign who had the title, I guess, of advisor on one of the uh, one of the clicks they had there. I think the national security one or the foreign affairs one. Uh, these were kind of loose arrangements, anyway. But the the main point here is that for months, the Times and the Democrats and you know other. Uh, in the anti-Trump camp, gave us a narrative of collusion that was based on Carter Page. In fact, uh, before the Times blockbuster this weekend about Papadopoulos, they had a similarly breathless Page One story in April of 2017 saying that it all went back to Carter Page. And Page is another one of these obscure guys who was a foreign policy advisor to the campaign. But with respect to Page, um, the reason they were uh, all in a lather over him uh, was because he had gone to Moscow in uh, July during the campaign. And he is inextricably linked with the Steele dossier. The major allegations about the Steele dossier when they first started coming into the FBI were about these activities that Page engaged in when he was in Russia. So my theory is that the the Steele dossier is now blowing up on the left, um, in part because 
uh, it hasn't been verified. Even Jim Comey, who's no, the former FBI director, who's no friend of Trump's, uh, when he testified before the Senate in June of 2017, so that's just a few months ago, uh, he said that even then uh, the Steele dossier was unverified. So if it was unverified in June of 2017, it was obviously unverified in September of 2016, nine months earlier, uh, when the Bureau and Justice Department apparently used it in getting a FISA warrant uh, against Carter Page. So I think the, the problem the Times has is that they are very invested in the collusion narrative, and the Page origination story that they gave us in April is now blowing up because it's mired in scandal between what happened in the FISA court and the fact that the dossier hasn't been verified. So they're trying to change the origination story. So we now have what I've been calling the Times Russian reset. We've gone from Carter Page to George Papadopoulos. But that story doesn't make any sense either. Um, You know, they obviously, they never got a FISA warrant for Papadopoulos. Uh, whatever he said to the, to this Australian guy in the bar was so uh, unimportant to the Australians that they didn't mention it for a few months uh, to the Americans until uh, the stories came out about the emails being leaked uh, by WikiLeaks. Um, the Bureau was obviously so unimpressed by it that they didn't question Papadopoulos until January and February of 2017. So they let months go by. And... No one ever heard Papadopoulos' name until Mueller, the special counsel, took a guilty plea to making a false statement to the FBI from Papadopoulos this past October. So, Buck, we know that everything that has gone on in a major, of a major character in this investigation has been leaked to us um, for months and months and months. It's inconceivable that if Papadopoulos had been the driving force of this investigation, nobody would have heard his name, including, by the way, James Clapper, who recently said, um, you know, on one of his TV appearances the last few days that he had never heard of the guy. Uh, You know, know, Andy, just um, a little additional context to this as well uh, for, for the folks out there. The intelligence community deals with so much intelligence that or information that you would call uh, crappy, crap, lousy, worthless right. uh, rumors, rumor intelligence. That stuff comes in all the time. The notion that the FBI wouldn't have realized the politically radioactive nature of running a counterintelligence investigation based on what some dude no one had heard of said to some dude in a bar during a presidential election is borderline. I mean, well, I think it is actually pretty laughable. I think we could say it's laughable. Yeah, I no, I absolutely agree with you. And in fact, you know, Buck, we've heard a lot with respect to Carter Page about how tuned in they all were to this and how careful they were and how they didn't want to go to the FISA court on Page until he had severed ties or the Trump campaign had severed ties with him. So this was obviously something that they were riveted to and giving a lot of thought to. Uh, And now we're supposed to say, with respect to all that stuff, oh, Carter Page, never mind. It was Papadopoulos, who no one ever heard of all along. Andy, this may be disappointing for some folks to hear. And we're speaking to Andy McCarthy, everybody, contributing editor at National Review. Read his latest at nationalreview.com. Uh, but even let, let's just say, and I agree with you on this, and I, I have felt this way for a while, 
that right now the most likely scenario is that the dossier, which is Hillary paid for, Hillary campaign paid for oppo research, essentially allowed the Democrats to uh, piggyback on the intelligence community's capabilities to try to kneecap the Trump administration. But if that all happened, and people aren't going to want to hear this, but I think we should put this out there now, depending on what you say, but uh, that would be politically bombshell, radioactive, terrible, toxic stuff for the Democrats. But, like, no one from the FBI is going to go to jail for that, right? I mean, there's no illegality per se, even if the dossier was used, right? Or, or is there? Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right, Buck. And it goes to a point that I've been trying to make uh, with respect to a lot of the stuff from the beginning. You know, there's a reason that impeachable offenses don't have to be violations of the federal penal law. You know, they don't have to be ordinary crimes. They can be abuses of power. And in fact, very often, abuses of power um, are a lot more serious than things we would regard as crimes. So you're quite right. Um, you know, the fact, assuming the worst that this actually happened, um, uh, you know, unless somebody can be, can be proved to have lied to a court, which I, I doubt we'll ever uh, find, um, there's no possibility of prosecution here. Um, but it would be a major abuse of power, and it would be a basis to to impose, uh, you know, administrative discipline up to the point of uh, firing people. I would be remiss, Andy, if I didn't ask you about the House Intel Committee finally getting the documents on Fusion GPS from uh, the Department of Justice. What can you tell us about this, and, and where do you think that's going? Well, I think, Buck, at this point, we can cautiously say they have a they have a commitment from the Justice Department that finally they will get them. Um, I, to my knowledge, they don't have them in hand yet. Um, what I would say about this, Buck, is that uh, I've, I've regarded this as strange all along because the Justice Department and the FBI are now being run by Trump uh, appointees. So why they would be stonewalling the Republican-led Intelligence Committee which is trying to get disclosure of information that would probably be helpful to President Trump if it were disclosed, particularly if it turns out that, you know, political propaganda was used to get a FISA warrant. Why on earth they wouldn't, uh, you know, be trying to give the committee what they have with both hands rather than stonewalling them has always been mysterious to me. Uh, it's been very disappointing to watch the uh, FBI people and DOJ people testify and uh you know, really block Congress from getting answers to questions. Yeah, they're evading, right? I mean, Andy, you're somebody that used to professionally look for people evading under testimony. They're evading, aren't they? No, exactly right. Yep. (laughs) And they're given, you know, Buck, this idea that because there's an internal Justice Department Inspector General investigation, they can't answer Congress's questions when it's Congress that not only created the Justice Department and funds it, but has constitutional oversight responsibility. And yet the Justice Department looks it in the eye and says, gee, I can't tell you that because I wouldn't want to interfere with the, inter- the Inspector General's investigation. Um, you know, that's pretty bad. One more for you, Andy, before we let you go. Uh, Mueller in 2018, did, are you expecting any, any huge stuff or is this going to kind of drag along, grind along in the background for the foreseeable? I expect it's going to grind along, but just because, you know, a little thing like, uh, the indictment of Manafort, which I expect is going to be superseded, that alone would take more than a year to get it to, to court to trial. 
So I've always expected that because this is probably about impeachment and because whether there could ever be impeachment or not hinges on whether the Democrats win the House or not in 2018, I think we're at least going into next year. Andy McCarthy, everybody, of National Review. Go to nationalreview.com for his latest. Also, definitely follow him on Twitter, at Andrew McCarthy, Andrew C. McCarthy. Andy, great to have you, man. Happy New Year. Thanks so much for joining. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Buck. You too. Bye. All right, team, we're going to roll into a break. The Buck Sexton Show, which is just fun to say, so I'm going to keep saying it a lot today. The Buck Sexton Show will continue uh, right after this break with a whole lot more. We're going to get to the Iran protests. Don't worry, that's coming up. Stay with me. So does President Trump see marijuana as a state issue or a federal issue? Uh, the president believes in enforcing federal law. That would be his top priority. Uh, and that is regardless of what the topic is, whether it's marijuana or whether um, it's immigration. The president strongly believes that we should enforce uh, federal law. Uh, the move that the Department of Justice has made, which my guess is what you're referencing, uh, simply gives prosecutors the tools to take on large scale distributors and enforce federal law. The president's position hasn't changed, but he does strongly believe that we have to enforce federal law. I disagree with the uh, DOJ position on this one, and a lot of you, I'm sure, disagree with me, and that's fine. Uh, you know, I just tell you what I really think about this stuff. Not just like, oh, what's going to get the biggest ratings pop every day on air? I mean, this is what I think. Uh, this is a bad move. Um, not a huge issue, but it plays into some much larger ones. Let me tell you why. Uh, first of all, if you're a conservative, the only reason that marijuana is illegal at the federal level is because of the progressive... I know, we're about to go deep here for a second, but we don't have too much time, so I promise I won't, I won't meander long. The progressive interpretation of the Supreme Court case Wickard v. Filburn, okay? That was about selling wheat and even if you didn't sell it across state lines because selling it within a state affects selling it across state lines according to their interpretation it meant that anything that is commerce in this in any state could be treated as interstate commerce therefore could be regulated by the federal government and anything that touches commerce therefore in any state could therefore be regulated by the federal government in every state Wickard v. Filburn is the monstrosity for the Supreme Court monstrosity from which so much of progressive overreach uh, has sprung. And with marijuana and the Controlled Substances Act, you have, I believe, a federal overreach. If you believe in federalism, this should be an issue that is left to the states. And also, if you believe in rule of law, that has to mean something more than just, well, you know, last year the administration wasn't sending people to prison for this. Now they might be sending people to prison for this, but we're going to leave it up to the discretion of the specific U.S. attorneys in the different states. Well, if it's up to the discretion of those U.S. attorneys, shouldn't it be up to the discretion? Why not have it up to the discretion of the state legislature and actually respect federalism? I'm not even making an argument here, although I could, about how marijuana is less... Yes, less damaging and less lethal than alcohol. And you know, I mean, I, we, we could go in that direction. But I'm not even going there. And I don't smoke marijuana. And I haven't in a very long time. Um, I could tell you that I gave up any illegal substance of any kind when I decided to join. Well, when I decided I wanted to join the CIA. So 9-11, I can give you the date. I was like, all right, that's it for me. 
I want to I want to join the agency. 9/11 happened, they attacked my hometown. So anyway, I'm just saying. I'm so I'm not a uh, I, I'm not unaware of people that are highly functioning adults even who are consistent marijuana smokers, but I'm not even, let's focus on the legality and the constitutionalism of this and, and come at the issue from that perspective. Uh, I think that it's eroding respect for the rule of law when you're now playing this game of like, well, we're going to not enforce, we are going to enforce it. This, the Congress needs to step up here. You've got members of Congress that are saying, oh, well, this is a bad idea. Okay, then change the law. We've gotten used to this. Well, we'll leave it up to other people. They won't be really accountable. It'll change. It won't change. No, 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 no. If we're going to be a rule of law country, it means that the people who write the laws should be responsible for those laws and shouldn't leave it to others and their discretion to do what they think may be the right thing with regard to those laws, because that then that act of, oh, okay, we're going to leave this law in place, but just expect people to not really enforce it. That erodes respect for all of the legislate legislature's activities, because is this a real law is a serious law or not? And if you want to start rolling back federal overreach and if you want to have an experiment of federalism in real time, let's see what happens. And, you know, we've been seeing what happens. And I got to say, you know, Colorado hasn't turned into some evil hellscape because they're selling weed to people now. Same thing's true for Washington State. And there are a bunch of other places I know that have just moved to legalize or decriminalize as well. Congress should decriminalize marijuana, full stop. And leave it to the states. If the state of Oklahoma, if the state of uh, Montana wants to say no weed here... That's up to them, but this shouldn't be at the federal. It shouldn't be decided at the federal level. Marijuana uh, should, first of all, treating it as a schedule. I think it's a schedule. Yeah, it's a schedule one controlled substance under the the CSA, the Controlled, I mean, that controlled Substances Act. This is crazy. It's crazy. And I'm not some guy over here who's like, you know, hey man, like it's you know, it's, it's all buy some glassware and see what happens. Like I'm not that guy. But if you believe in constitutionalism and federalism, I think you believe that this is should be left. This should be left to the states. Uh, this is not a a clear moral issue, and anybody. And now I am kind of veering into the want to talk about alcohol and you know the effect that that can have on people and everything else. So, all right, that's my sense on this one. I don't agree with the administration on this. I do agree with the administration on Iran, however. I think the Trump team deserves a big high five. We're going to talk about the Iran protests coming up. You are now entering the Freedom Hut Tactical Operations Center. All sensitive programs must be kept strictly need to know. Team Buck is cleared. Roger that. And ready for the Buck Brief. Protests spreading across Iran. It looked like for a few days there the regime was in trouble. But where is this going now? And also, what does it tell us about U.S. foreign policy current and past? We will talk to uh, Sarab Amari now about it. He is a senior writer at Commentary Magazine. You can check out his latest at commentarymagazine.com. So, Rob, great to have you. Happy New Year. Happy New Year, man. So, so, so what do you see happening right now in Iran from the, from the perspective of what's going on inside the country? I want to talk about the Ben Rhodes, Obama versus Trump foreign policy with you in a, in a few minutes here. But first, yeah. what's really happening on the ground in Iran? Well, as always in these cases, um, and as you know, Buck, uh, these things are hard to understand from the outside. 
So let me just put that on as a caveat out there. But what we do know is that um, for about a week now, Iranians have been pouring into the streets um, across the country uh, in uh, protests with militantly anti-regime slogans. They began in the city of Mashhad, which is a very pious, conservative city in the northeast of the country. Um, uh, and it seemed that the initially the, the focus of the slogans or the, uh, or the protesters was the economy, joblessness, inflation, graft, things like that. But very quickly they spread uh, nationwide. And as they grew, the slogans shifted to opposing the entire regime. So the slogans became death to Islamic Republic death to Khamenei, the supreme leader, um, uh, uh, and also taking on the regime's foreign policy. So uh, some of the slogans were, for example, um, let Syria be, do something for me, or not Gaza, not Lebanon, my life only for Iran. So it took on this nationalistic, anti-regime tone, and um, it's gone on now. If you look at the uh, Twitter, the very good source, actually, for, for finding footage of it, um, it's become a little bit more. Uh, uh, the numbers, I think, have have gone down a bit. This is a regime that's quite brutal and quite skilled at putting down uprisings, but we just don't know. And I think this, it's likely that uh, it's just as likely that they, that they will continue in low intensity form. Uh, and you know, again, who knows where we are? Is this the beginning of a regime collapse scenario, or was it just a kind of uh, one-time uh, explosion that's now fizzling out. That's a that's an open question. So for everyone listening, it's important to to keep in mind that uh, this is an, an Iranian uh, outrage at essentially poor governance, right? At broken promises, at ineptitude from the I was going to say bureaucracy, but it's it's a theocracy. Uh, but the economy has been stagnant, right? What youth unemployment, something like twenty five percent in Iran. I mean, they have. Uh, they've got all kinds of problems with the number I've heard 40. Oh, wow. Okay. So (laughs) even, even higher. Um, but the unemployment rate is, is incredibly high. They've had trouble with, uh, well, obviously the, the currency is, uh, has been battered. Uh, The growth is stagnant. There's no way that the regime is going to be able to change any of that though, realistically. Right. I mean, that's, so this seems like they have no, the only answer the Iranian government can come up with is force. There's no reforms that the current uh, that the, the mullahs will be able to come up with that will actually improve things all that much? Or, or is there? What do you think? I think that you asked a really good question. I think what the, the realization that the Iranian people have come to is that the economic problems, which, uh, you know, in many ways, this is a, you could call it an egg or, a, uh, egg or an omelet protest, because in part, the initial frustration has to do with the fact that prices are very high, a lot of uh, lower middle class, working class families relied on this one protein source, eggs, to be able to uh, to feed their families. And now with the price of, of that shooting up uh, 20% over a year or some such, um, they feel like they, not even omelet, uh, the omelet is not even an accessible source of protein. So there's a, a, a clear economic dimension to it. Uh, but as you pointed out, people are realizing that their economic problems are deeply bound up with the political structure of the regime. Um, the Iranian people have gone through various phases of trying to seek reform within the limited uh, 
uh, avenues that the regime provides them. You know, the, it it does have periodic elections, although they're essentially sham elections because the regime pre-selects all the all the candidates and the vast majority are disqualified before their names ever appear on the ballot. There's a parliament, but again, it's a rubber stamp parliament, and there are all sorts of unelected um, institutions that really hold power, beginning with the supreme leader and then the security apparatus, which includes the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, which is the Praetorian Guard of the regime, as well as the Basij Militia, which is sort of Islamist paramilitary. Uh, there is the uh, uh, these obscure and uh, uh, vastly wealthy foundations that are supposed to help the dispossessed. So that's what they were founded, founded to do, but they're in fact huge slush funds uh, where no one knows where the money goes and where it goes out and who, you know, who has control over it and essentially the regime's uh, senior figures use to their own benefit. Uh, the media is under the control, the state-run media is under the control of the Supreme Leader. The judiciary answers to the Supreme Leader. So in the reform within the avenues that the regime provides the people, the sham elections to the parliament and presidency have just not produced any change or any improvement. And this is a regime that was founded. Its basic promise was justice to, for the for the dispossessed, and it's failed that uh, at that for 40 years because of the corruption, because of the repression. Uh, a, and the fact that now the people, again, as I said, are coming to this realization that, um, reform may not be possible. And so they have nothing to lose. They're hungry, they're jobless, they're angry. So the, the social conditions for an explosion are very much, they're ripe. We're speaking to Sarab Amari, who's a senior writer at Commentary Magazine. Read his latest at commentarymagazine.com. Sarab, uh, what would you say are the, the biggest differences that jump out to you? And I know this is never this is certainly not an apples-to-apples apples comparison here, but the differences between the Iranian state today and where Egypt was right at the, on the brink or right in the days of the Tahrir Square uprisings. Is, is it just – was it that the, the, the military didn't go along with Mubarak in that case but was unwilling to take a hand against the people? I mean, what are the key differences between what we've seen – in Iran so far, or, or the situation in Iran versus Tahrir, just to get a sense as to the initial question, which is, is this the beginning of the end in Iran, or is this just a blip on the radar screen for the mullahs? I think the number one difference is the fact that, uh, that th- first of all, that this is a highly ideological regime. Uh, Mubarak's regime was essentially a, a kind of non-ideological uh, kleptocracy uh, one man rule backed by uh, by the military, but it didn't have that ideological dimension. Right, so it's a so secular it have, kleptocracy instead of a theocracy kleptocracy. Yeah, a theocracy that sees itself, uh, or at least advertises itself as as not only uh, waging a, a permanent revolution at home since 1979, but also seeking to export its model uh, elsewhere in the Middle East and has all this sort of grandiose messianic ideas about itself. So that's one key difference, which I think uh, uh, the ideological dictatorships um, can be tougher to depose. And the second one, which follows from it, is that precisely because it has that ideological aspect and because, uh, you know, I would characterize the Iranian regime as more than just authoritarian. I would characterize it as quasi-totalitarian in the sense that, unlike the Mubarak's, it really wants to uh, uh, assert control over people's deepest or most intimate 
life choices and the way they think and so forth in a way that you couldn't say it about your average Arab corrupt authoritarian regime, which makes it much more brutal, which much makes it willing to uh, use force uh, much more liberally than uh, Mubarak might have. And certainly the other fact is that because it's opposed to the U.S., it doesn't answer to the U.S. either. To, to some extent, uh, Mubarak's regime, to a large extent, it looked to the U.S. As the, as the patron state. And so the U.S. could exert influence to restrain Mubarak's response and eventually called for him to step down. That's obviously not the case with the Iranians. So for all sorts of reasons, um, it's a more brutal, resilient, and highly ideological regime than, than 2011 Egypt. One more for you, Sarab. The Trump administration response to this and the the role of the possible role of U.S. foreign policy right now to be helpful to the protesters. What, what do you what do you make of it? Well, as you probably know, I, w- I w- I've been a critic of, of the Trump administration at various points, but I have to you know you have to be intellectually honest and give credit where it's due. And I think that um, the Trump administration has passed so far the moral test of this moment, the statements have been much stronger, both the ones that are more organic to the president tweets, but also um, Nikki Haley, the things that she ha- has said at the United Nations, Vi- Vice President Pence's interview uh, with Voice of America, which obviously gets broadcast into Iran and Persian. Um, all of those have been, at least on, on the moral front, it's been a vast improvement over what happened to, in 2009 when the Obama administration you had much more massive protests in terms of numbers. Uh, estimated 3 million people came out in Tehran, but the Obama administration was so committed to trying to forge a nuclear deal that it lost the opportunity, both moral and strategic, to uh, maybe take out one of the most, uh, one of the, you know, the U.S.'s number one adversary in the Middle East. So in this case, that's not been the case, both morally and strategically. They've been seeing this as, as the opportunity and the responsibility that it is, and they've spoken out. Um, they could do more. They could do, I, I think that uh, the, U, the U.S. can um, use sanctions, for example, uh, to uh, punish individual human rights violators. That might change the calculus for some of the people in the security apparatus when they begin to think if they can't access foreign markets, if they can't get a hold of foreign currency, what do they do with their children who they sent to study abroad in Britain or uh, Austria or wherever. Um, that's one opportunity. Uh, and I also think the U.S. more generally can begin to, to do what Trump, President Trump has set out that he wants to do, which is to confront the regime's other, you know, the non-nuclear nefarious activities in the Middle East, in, uh, in its region, and its efforts to uh, destabilize the region. All of those would, um, I think, help the protesters. Uh, but ultimately, at the end of the day, I, I have to say this is in part, the U.S. can only do so much. It's, it, these things are in part a matter of the internal balance of forces between the opposition and the regime. Yeah, this is an Iranian problem first and foremost, and, and hopefully the, the, side, <laughs> the, the, the side of the protesters prevails. But it's very early in this, and it could be over very quickly and not in a good way. Sarab Amari, everybody, check out Commentary Magazine. Sarab, great to have you, sir. Happy New Year. Talk to you soon. Thanks, Buck. Talk soon. All right, team, we're rolling into a break here. I'll be back with much more, including some uh, some thoughts later on this hour on Aruba, where I spent some time on vacation. Uh, I'm just going to tell you about vacation a little bit. It'll be fun because right now it's the, the mother of all storms here in, in New York City. So we'll get into that and much more. Stay with me.
So there you had some chants from the uh, Iranian protests. I wanted to share with you some of that audio. Uh, you know, they are they are calling for an end to the uh, Khomeini Islamist revolution in Iran. The uh, they they are not just saying they're upset; they want an end to all this. Um, I would like to spend a little bit of time here with you, noting how this was treated immediately in the media and by the. Former Obama officials who were so invested in getting that nuclear deal. And you could tell that while there's this this prospect of in Iran that no longer and I don't think it's going to happen. I'll be honest with you. Regimes that are hell bent on their own security are something that it's hard to fathom if you haven't spent time in some of these states where just staying in power is what occupies 80% of the effort and resources and time of those in power, right? And that's the case in Iran. Their, their number one goal is to, for the people running the show, is not to have results that are going to benefit the Iranian people. It's to stay in power. And that just filters through the entirety of the military and the bureaucracy and, and all the rest of it. But with the prospect of a very different Iran, you still had... And it's remarkable when you think about it, but you still had people in this country who you could tell were rooting for failure. Even though in Iran, no longer in the clutches of the mullahs would have been, would be for all of us, a tremendous boost to stability and security in the Mideast. Look, we we could have an Iran that's pro-Western and and democratic and could be a model for the rest of the Muslim world. I mean, I don't think that's going to happen. It could theoretically happen. But you get the Ben Rhodes and the, you know, the different New York Times folks and the former Obama administration officials who are clearly all terrified the prospect of their ineptitude and their stupidity when it comes to Iran being exposed. And that was their primary thought. That was the thing. The thing that mattered most to them was, oh, my gosh, if the mullahs in Tehran and across Iran, if they fall, if they are ousted, if this is a coup by the people, a popular, a truly popular revolution in Iran. What happens to all of our analysis about, oh, you know, Trump and the nuclear deal and he's going to ruin it all? Well, it's clearly all nonsense, right? It's garbage nincompoopery that was what they cared about most and that's the reason you saw so many individuals immediately shifting into this narrative of don't don't do anything don't say anything america the trump administration should be silent on iran why why would that be why would that be the appropriate course of action what are we going to do upset the mullahs they're forcing people paying people to burn flags and chant death to america all the time we're going to upset the IRGC where we should be sanctioning them and and hounding them in every way that we can. IRGC, has a, don't ever forget it. The Iranians, IRGC, they've got American blood on their hands. They were working to kill U.S. soldiers. They did kill U.S. soldiers in Iraq. It's a huge problem during the time that I, I was working Iraq issue at the agency. You know, these Iranians and explosively formed penetrators, these bombs, 
that were specifically designed to puncture the armor of U.S. vehicles to kill U.S. servicemen. Iranian hands all over that. And we're, we're worried about what? That we're not going to have the... Uh, we're not going to have the goodwill of the... We don't have any goodwill from the Iranian regime. Rouhani and all this fake, moderate uh, talk that you hear. Rather, the talk of him being a moderate is fake. No. Support for the popular resistance to this tyranny in Iran would be the best possible thing that the U.S. government can do. And Trump, as we were discussing before, has done that. And... In doing so, whatever they want to talk about with his cheeseburgers and his hair and his personal grooming habits and whatever else they've got going on. The fact is that Trump understood something about Iran that Obama certainly didn't back in 2009. Trump has made a much wiser choice as commander in chief when it comes to the U.S. position on Iran than Obama did in 2009. But the uh, former Obama acolytes, the Ben Rhodeses and others out there are, are just desperate to cover their own reputations. And if it means that another generation of Iranians are subjected to slavery, servitude, misery in Iran, uh, that seems to be much less of a concern to them than being proven to be phonies on foreign policy, frauds, which they most certainly are. But it would be undeniable if within the first year of the Trump administration, you had the fall of the mullahs. Undeniable that Trump's approach to Iran and to the nuclear deal and to supporting the resistance uh, was the wise course and Obama's course of being the, the world's greatest quizzling uh, was, not, was not, in fact, the appropriate move. Well, team, it is snowy outside here in New York City. The... Bomb cyclone has taken full effect. Ooh, it's like the Sharknado of storms. I promise you, bomb cyclone is going to be a cliche term within a matter of about 48 hours. But it is quite a change, as many of you can imagine, from where I had spent the last week. Uh, I was with uh, Miss Molly in Aruba. And I wanted to share with you some thoughts from my trip. So one thing that I am always a fan of is uh, silence. And <laughs> and as part of relaxation, uh, people that are willing to abide by certain basic decorum, right? So look, I, I don't want to go to a beach place where it's all and there are wet t-shirt contests and so uh, I specifically chose a, a resort that had a no children under or no people under 18 policy, uh, which Molly and I absolutely had a great time with. Look, when I, when I have my own little rugrats, I'm going to go to family resorts like everybody else and have a great time with the kids. But as somebody who does not yet have children, the ability to be on a beach and not hear any screaming, shouting or crying is a nice thing. So you, you can call me curmudgeonly. You could call me a get off my lawn, grumpy old man. But I enjoyed uh, my, my quiet. I read two books over the course of my vacation uh, and, and did a lot of just other reading of, of bits and pieces of things here and there because 
I can't really completely stay away from the news cycle, but if you're wondering, I read Under the Banner of Heaven by John Krakauer, and I also read a book called El Narco about the drug wars. It was published in 2011, but it's it's a deep dive into the cartels. Very well written, very well done, and I really enjoyed uh, both of those, and also made my way further into Miguel de Cervantes's uh, timeless classic Don Quixote, which is uh, a bit of a read. So that was what I spent my time reading. I, I just wanted to share some thoughts with you, though, on, on Aruba um, for purposes of this is like our own little Team Buck Yelp session, as well as uh, maybe a bit of a just some, some cultural musings as, as a visitor to this lovely island. So if you're looking for a place to go to that has pretty much perfect weather year round and is outside the hurricane belt in the Caribbean. I got to say Aruba is pretty, pretty great. It does get in the rainy season, which is right now passing quick showers. But, you know, we were out on the beach and we would see the storm clouds coming and you'd get a, a shower that lasted 10 or 15 minutes. Maybe you dry off your towel a little bit if you left it on your chair and, and then you're good. And then the sun would come back out. So it was really no problem at all. And many of you may already know this, but Aruba was a Dutch colony. So it has many uh, Dutch influences still on the island. The Dutch help with medicine. In fact, Arubans are Dutch citizens. They travel on Dutch passports and they are taught Dutch in school as well as a few other languages. Aruba, in that sense, is kind of like Malta. Everyone seems to speak at least three, if not four or five or maybe even six languages. The local dialect is Papiamento, which is a mix of mostly Spanish, but also some Portuguese and uh, and indigenous uh, slang and phraseology. They teach Papiamento now in Aruban schools. Aruba's got about 100,000 or so uh, year-round residents, and it's, uh, it's a very orderly place. The water's clean to drink, which is a big thing for me on vacation. I spent too much time in places where you have to be careful about even getting the water in your mouth from the tap, you know, or, or from the shower or anything. And it's just anxiety producing for me. I just don't want to do it anymore. You know, I've, I've taken all my shots. I've gone through all the malaria pills in the past. I, I don't need that stuff anymore. I've been there, done that. So I like a place where the water is clean. Uh, because it's an island, they rely on desalinization plants to use the seawater and, and bring about uh, fresh water. And it's a very orderly place. Uh, they're U.S. Customs, actually, on island. They understand that their biggest market by far are U.S. tourists. So there are a fair amount of Europeans and even South Americans I came across there, too. Uh, but it's a great place. And those of you who are heading there, by the way, team, you know, many of you do this when you come to New York and you're surprised. You're like, Buck, you'll write me on Facebook. What's the best burger place in New York City? And if I see the message, I'll, I'll respond and I'll tell you. I mean, my favorite burger place in New York City is J.G. Mellon's. People who say the corner bistro just don't know what they're talking about. But I'm happy to share NYC insights with the team. In fact, I should probably just do a Facebook post uh, with all of my, hey, if it's your first time in New York or if you're going back and want some new suggestions, here's the Team Buck approved NYC visitors list. But back to Aruba. So it, it's, I had a great time with Molly. We had a lot of, uh, we managed to have a really good food. I'd say that there's not a great culinary tradition in Aruba. Fresh fish, sure. I ate so much mahi-mahi, I think I turned into a mahi-mahi by the end. 
but there's the, the, the Dutch cuisine. It's not like some of the French, uh, former French colonies in the Caribbean where you can get just incredible uh, cuisine that's a mix of local Caribbean flair and spices with Parisian uh, culinary techniques. But, you know, the food, the food was pretty good. Uh, they're, they're lacking in some areas. I wouldn't say go, don't go to Aruba for the food, that's for sure. It was pretty good. It was also packed because, like I said, it's perfect weather even during the rainy season or close to perfect weather. And it's outside the hurricane belt, which means that the recent battering that many Caribbean islands took did not affect Aruba. Perhaps of greatest interest to all of you, though, is the geopolitical situation of Aruba right now, which is most notably, other than it's an island paradise for tourists, which is really what it is. I mean, it is a tourist. It is a tourist attraction. That is Aruba's primary identity as as a place, Uh, but that it is about 15 miles from the Venezuelan coast. It's way down in the southern Caribbean and is almost like an appendage of Venezuela. I mean, it is close. You can see from the southern tip of the island of Aruba, you can see the coast of Venezuela on a clear day. And we haven't discussed it recently on this show, but Venezuela is in a really terrible situation with the uh, lines for basic foodstuffs, and it's just getting worse all the time. Amazingly enough, Maduro, the... uh, imbecilic but uh, high endurance despot uh, has managed to cling on to power there but I heard stories from uh, native Arubans I like to talk to people that as much as I can anywhere I visit to get a sense of what the locals are thinking and what they're up to and they said that Venezuelans are arriving there to buy basic uh, foodstuffs and, and toilet paper and this is what I thought was really interesting Aruba is a very nice, orderly place, at least the parts of it that tourists go to see. And it's well run. It's it's clean. Uh, it's a little, some would say it's a little tacky or cheesy in some places, which I think is a fair criticism. But overall, the beaches are world class, beautiful place. And if you arrive there, though, and you're a Venezuelan, you're on a Venezuelan passport, you have to show $1,000 in cash and a reason to be there to stay on the island or else you are on the next flight home. Uh, And whatever that flight is to Venezuela, it doesn't matter. You're on the next flight to Venezuela. If they find you on the island as an illegal, and there are, yes, illegal aliens, not just a problem in the U.S., people from Venezuela would much rather be in safe and relatively prosperous Aruba. But if you're an illegal and they find you on the island, they send you right back. There's not a discussion about it. There's not... Immigration courts. There's not a backlog of uh, of months with them. It's just, oh, you're an illegal. We are taking you to a detainment center next to the airport, and you are flying back now. And the Coast Guard, which is uh, largely uh, Dutch in terms of the equipment and the and the well, it's largely Dutch. Period. The Dutch are providing military and Coast Guard service for Aruba. They're trying to stop any vessels from smuggling people to Venezuela. But I thought it was just notable that here you have a place that's very orderly, very you know, socialized medicine in the healthcare clinics run by the Dutch. And yet, if you arrive on that island as a Venezuelan, despite the desperate straits of the Venezuelan state right now and its people, the Arubans, as nice as they are, and their main 
their their main slogan is one happy island, right? They're like they're like, hey, we're just one happy island. If you're there and you're illegal, they send you back right away. That's it. You are on the next flight. There is no delay. There's no discussion. There's no nothing. You are out of there if you are an illegal. And so I, I, as we get ready for a 2018 that is almost certain to have a very acrimonious uh, back and forth between the pro-DACA in particular and pro-immigration enforcement factions in this country, just remember that in a lot of other places that pride themselves for being forward-thinking and inclusive and uh, pro-rule of law, but also very progressive in their attitudes, if you're in that country, you're not supposed to be there, they find you, the government finds you, the police, the immigration services find you, they just send you home. What's your passport? What's your country of origin? You're going back there. That's it. No one calls them racist. No one's like, oh, the Arubans are, are, are racists against the Venezuelans or against uh, South Americans. They just send them back because laws. Oh, yeah. Also, I drank a lot of pina coladas. I got to say, the sugary drink thing is it's like a few days of that, and then I just can't take it anymore. But I, I will admit to you all now that I, I drank some things there that I would never accept on vacation. I actually had something called a grasshopper, which is like if you let your mint chocolate chip ice cream melt in a martini glass and then drank it, that's pretty much what a grasshopper tastes like. So yes, in a sense, it's amazing. Uh, but there were some uh, other ones that I tried, including uh, I had never had a, a, well, an almond liqueur pina colada. That was very bougie and fancy. Uh, but after a few days of that, I just felt like it's it's too much. It's like drinking a milkshake with booze in it, which is great for a while. But anyway, more on the booze, perhaps another time. All right, team, we're going to close up shop here for the day on The Buck Sexton Show in just a minute. Stay with me. Welcome back to The Buck Sexton Show. Feels good to say. Sounds good to my ears. Very excited for what that means for 2018 my friends it is going to be as i have been saying it's going to be an awesome year it's going to be a fantastic year uh fantastic year here in the freedom hut it's also going to be a great year i think for the country i really do i'm very optimistic and bullish right now i know I, the the easy way to go is to always pile on the uh, not just the skepticism but the gloom and doom, the catastrophist approach, because that's inherently interesting, right? We're all going to die is going to get people to pay attention, at least at some level. Maybe they'll mock you, but at least they'll listen, right? Or, you know, the, the market's going to zero. The economy is toast. Uh, oh, no, the debt's going to crush us. Don't get me wrong, but it's going to take a while. So in the meantime, yeah, I might as well enjoy the good times. It's going to correct. But for now, I've decided, you know what? Let's just lean into the whole American prosperity situation we got going on here. And with that in mind, as we continue to evolve and fine tune all aspects of the Freedom Hut, we're going to get into what used to be called Team Buck Speaks. But now, because of your comments, I will refer to as Team Buck Roll Call, which we should come up with a cool intro for that. And that is a note now to myself. Uh, so this is where we get into your emails uh, that can come to us at official Team Buck at gmail.com and also facebook.com slash buck sexton and let me say uh well i have you here that while i was leaving for aruba with miss molly uh for the first time ever that i was the molly a member of the team saw me in the airport in the JetBlue terminal of 
JFK and said, Buck. And he was with his wife and they're about to go on vacation as well. And I just want to say that the, the wife looked like she was a little a little mortified that her husband had yelled out my name uh, because it kind of caused a little bit of a not a commotion. People were like, oh, what happened here? Uh, I just want to say thank you, because one, you made me look cool in front of my girlfriend right before vacation. So high five for that. And also, I live in New York City. I walk around here. People have no idea. Some of them know my face from CNN on mute when I used to work there from the treadmills. Uh, when they'd be on the treadmill at the gym or, you know, they had monitors on maybe at work, but they didn't know me the way that, I mean, the team knows, but you guys are all my friends. You know me well, you know me from this show. So that's my way of saying, first of all, thank you to that guy. I didn't get his name and his wife's name, but thank you very much for, uh, you know, giving me a, giving me a high five for the team. And also, yeah, if you ever see me and you feel like it, I know a lot of you are like, Buck, I, I listen to your show, but I'm, I'm not about to like walk over and, and, and have a, have a Frappuccino with you. Uh, but if you ever see me, feel free to say hi, of course. I, I love I love seeing members of the team out there. So with that, let's get into some of the emails. We have Tanner down in Texas sent me a photo as well. My wife got me this awesome Shields High t-shirt, t-shirt for Christmas. Happy New Year and hope you're enjoying vacation. Well, Tanner, looking good, my man, in that Shields High t-shirt. And those of you who want to buy one, bucksexton.com they are available there they are fashionable year round they are very high quality cotton you will like them uh dave writes in shields high buck just a quick note to thank you for offering such a quality political analysis program these days i'm listening to shapiro rush and you uh, i'm amazed that you replied to a few facebook messenger comments and read a couple on air it's heartwarming wish i could get advance notice for your tv appearances and try a porterhouse best wish best wishes dave all right cool thank you dave bruce with the next one. First off uh, i hope you and your family had a most blessed christmas and prayers for a safe and prosperous new year i'm curious to hear your thoughts on the possibility that the current iran uprising has been politically fueled by radical leftists and their backers in this country in an attempt to test the resolve of Donald Trump and force him into what they believe to be a no-win situation no matter his actions. This one coming from Bruce. Well, Bruce, let me tell you, this is a this is a 90, 90% an Iran issue and 10% a U.S. foreign policy influenced or, or dictated, directed issue. So I, I don't want to go too far down the pathway of, well, what could it be that's creating this that has nothing to do or, or that that's about uh, hurting Trump and the administration. I just think that this is a long time coming for the Iranians. The regime is a disgrace and a bunch of tyrants. And I've been saying this for a long time. It's one of the reasons why I've been really negative on the notion of airstrikes that could lead to a long aerial campaign and maybe even a ground campaign if things went really badly in Iran. Iranian people are on our side because they know that their country's messed up, not because of us. Iranian people are actually, and I know you got to be careful when you say this about the Middle East, but they are poised to be a pretty pro-Western country if you just pulled the sclerotic and vile theocracy off their backs. So that's that's something to keep in mind here. The Iranian people, they've got a lot of educated young people who are yearning for freedom. Uh, Steve writes in, I'm an OSS member, truly enjoy your show. In fact, you're the only talk radio show I listen to. Have done the big three over the years, but when you came on, it was no contest. You're the top dog. I just want to say, since the podcast is my only option for listening, I would like to have been able to hear your fill-in host. No podcast, no listen. Thanks for a great show. Happy birthday and happy new year. Shields high, Steve. 
Well, Steve, thank you very much for your kind words. Uh, you're, you, uh, you humble me, and uh, you do me great honor. And I would also just say that, uh, yes, we will work on getting the podcast for the fill-in hosts as well. Speaking of podcasts, subscribe to Shields High. It comes out next week. It's going to be awesome. And until then, my friends, you know that was a perfect transition. Smooth as silk. Shields High.